Okay, we are continuing the exposition of the book of Romans. Today, we are focusing on one verse. This verse is often cited, and we will exposit this verse today in hopes that the Lord will give us eyes to see and a heart to understand what the Holy Spirit is telling us. If you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, please, let's do so now. Romans 8, verse 28. The inerrant, authoritative word of God reads as follows. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, we are reminded this morning about the absolute and exhaustive knowledge and control of all things that belong only to you. May we, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the understanding that your Spirit would grant us this morning, understand that your purposes are to be followed and submitted to for everything that goes on in our lives. May we look to your word this morning for that instruction and that hope. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. You may be seated. I've titled today's sermon, The Certainty of God's Purposes. The Certainty of God's Purposes. As I was uh, looking online this morning, one of the ministries that I follow uh, on social media, they had a post which said that on this day, two men who were known as the Oxford Martyrs were burned at the stake, October 16, 1515, 1555, I'm sorry. These men were Ridley and Latimer, they were accused of heresy for preaching and teaching justification by faith alone, which is contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church taught and teaches to this day. I'll read a small paragraph from this, uh, from the article that I, I found later. It says, Ridley went to the, to the pyre in a smart black gown, but gray-haired Latimer, who had a gift for publicity, wore a shabby old garment, which he took off to reveal a shroud. Ridley kissed the stake, and both men knelt and prayed. After a 15-minute sermon urging them to repent, they were chained to the stake, and a bag of gunpowder was hung around each man's neck. The pyre was made of gorse branches and of wood. As the fire took hold, Latimer was stifled by the smoke and died without pain. But poor Ridley was not so lucky. The wood was piled up above his head. But he was in agony and repeatedly cried out, Lord, have mercy upon me. I cannot burn. Cranmer, who was made to watch, would go to his own death the following year. 
My brothers, we have often heard when the gospel is being shared, God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. What it is we're told to these two men as they went to be burnt at the stake? What if they had been told to Joseph as his brothers betrayed him and reported him as dead to their father? What if this, God has a wonderful plan for your life, has been had been told to Saul of Tarsus after he was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus and was struck with blindness? Instead, he was told that he was going to be shown what he must suffer for the name of Christ. So then, does God have a wonderful plan for my life, for your life? You'd be surprised if I tell you, actually, yes, he does. However, that wonderful plan will by no means be what an unregenerate mind thinks that it is. Or if we are honest, that wonderful plan that God does have for his children will not look the way most American Christians think as they envision that God has a wonderful plan for their lives. Acts 14, 21 and 22 reads as follows. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Today, as we read Romans 8.28, we are told that all things, all things work together for good. What does all things mean? Well, they might fall into two categories. First, those things that we perceive as good. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, right? Absolutely. And God, in His goodness, and even in his common grace to those who are not his children, spiritually speaking, gives us enjoyment of his creation, gives us the enjoyment of family, food, technology, our ability to learn, etc. And beyond God's common grace to his elect, to us that are his children, his people, to Christians, he gives us much more. He gives us understanding of his word. He gives us a regeneration so that we can know him. He gives us faith, wisdom, forgiveness, a spiritual family within the local church. He has adopted us as his children. And ultimately, he gives us the promise of eternal life, which begins in this lifetime and will be manifest at the second coming of our Lord. All these things are good things. Do those things work for good? You bet. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what about those things that we do not consider to be good? Sickness, suffering, death, distress, tribulations, persecution, conflicts, wars, injustices. What about those things? 
especially when one of our very own family members or church members goes through something like this. Do those things also work together for good? Scripture says yes. Those things do work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So the main point we're going to withdraw from Paul's text, which inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is God's word, is the following. We're going to extract that God promises His children that all things, everything they go through, will ultimately be for their good. We will see this in three main points. First, we're going to see that there's a certainty being assured in this text. A certainty. Secondly, we're going to see a condition that will apply to certain people. A condition. It doesn't apply to everyone. And then we see the promise. A certainty that we know is true. A condition that will apply to only some. That particular promise. So let us look at what the certainty is. The first portion of that verse, first three words in the English language, says, And we know. We know. Previously, we had seen that the Holy Spirit is the helper to every believer. In the sermon next, uh, last week, we saw that specifically the Spirit is a helper to ourselves when we are weak. And that the Spirit intercedes for us even with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us as children of God. Now, given the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Ghost, follows up with this very verse. We are being interceded for. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit either gives us the right words to pray or prays for us. And then he says, we know, we know that. And this theme throughout scripture calls our attention to the certainty of God's word. The certainty of God's promises. Paul says, we know. The word in Greek there, we know, it means to know, to have knowledge of specific information as a matter of fact. Certainty. God's word and its authority is ultimate. Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, says we know. Now, when we speak about objective truth, and specifically moral truth or spiritual truth, the well-grounded Christian does not need to appeal to any other source of authority other than Scripture. A common claim would go something like this. Christians should not be allowed to exercise or to let their convictions guide what they will share in the public square, what they will do at their jobs, or even for those that are in positions of power, for them not to be influenced by their worldview as Christians. The question every thoughtful Christian should ask then is, if not a biblical worldview, then whose worldview? If we're not going to depend on the centrality and the authority of God's word, which shows us God's own character, his holiness, his justice, to love him, to love each other, 
to honor, then what other standard will our society live off of as a guide? Some will be happy to say, well, basically it boils down to whatever opinion gets the most hands raised up. Or even whatever the ruling class decides, the experts will better guide us into what we need to do. If only we would realize that on such basis, the most awful atrocities in the history of humanity have occurred. When God's law has been put aside and something else taken that vacuum. The certainty of God's truth then, that includes past history, which applies to current issues and future events, and is both moral and spiritual, is what we must base our worldview on. The certainty of God's word. Every time scripture says, we know, it is using God's very own authority, which cannot be trumped. Luke 1, verses 3 and 4 says, this is uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, in the introduction of, of his book, which he's addressing to Theophilus. It says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. God's word is written for our certainty. And then we see John 17, 17. What is known as the Lord Jesus' priestly prayer. He says, praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is instructive to be used for our edification for our learning, for our instruction, for our guide in life, for faith and practice. His word is truth. These are only but a couple of examples where God's word unequivocally claims exclusive right to objective, absolute truth in all matters. Therefore, any other claims, any other standard that is brought before us that brings us certainty that opposes the truth of God should be rejected by all believing Christians. I don't care how many experts raise their hand and tell you that biology has changed or that justice must require a facelift. No, if it contradicts scripture, it is wrong. So then the promise we are looking at today, all that to say is that it is presented to us with such certainty that is a matter of fact. Paul says, we know. Okay, what is it that we know? We now see that it is absolute. It is a promise we can take to the bank. What about it? It says, brings us to the condition. Romans 8, 28, let's read it all now. It says, and we know, that's a certainty, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. So the condition is. For those who love God. Which are the same ones. That are those who are called according to God's purpose. To them the promise is made. That all things work together for good. Which we'll see in the third point. But let's focus now on the condition. Those who love God. And those that are called according to his purpose. Now who are those who love God? 
Who are those who truly love God? James 1.12 tells us that those are those that stand strong during trials. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We see also that those that love God are known by God. Now, obviously, God knows everyone. He's, he has knowledge of all his creation. But those that are known by God, kenoskos, that is specifically referring to those that are known by God in a salvation sense. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We also know that those that love God, we love him because it is a commandment that is given to us. It is one of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6, 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is a binding commandment on all of God's creation. Anyone not doing that is in sin. Now, ultimately, the characteristic of someone, of those who love God, are told to us by our, the words of our own very Savior, our Lord Jesus. Luke 6, 46 our Lord says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Now this right here is starting to hit home, right? And then in John 14, 15, our Lord says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? Now, to those who love God, those who are Christians... We will have an overall transformed life, a regenerate heart, a regenerate mind, leading to a noticeable, obedient lifestyle to God. It doesn't mean that we're looking after each other. Just, aha, aha, you sinned. You don't love God. I'll, I'll be crushed every day if that was it. Now, it, if our life does not show a transformed life that we can look to and point to, if we don't see fruit in our life after weeks, months, years of having a profession of faith. It will not matter how many times we attend church or prayer service or if our parents raise us in a Christian home or even how much theology we know. If we do not obey God, if we do not hate sin and are not in a path of sanctification, the words of our Lord will apply to us this very day. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. This is the call to obedience for all those who are children of God. Obedience. Now, should go without saying, but I'll make it very clear. We are not talking about that you should obey God so that you may be saved. We're not saying that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus. All we can bring to the table when it comes to our salvation is our sin. Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. In which the Lord Jesus forgives us. He cleanses us. And he gives us his righteousness. Then we have a profession of faith. And we begin the life of a Christian. As that life of a Christian begins, if we are truly Christians, we will abide by his commandments. We will obey. Okay, that's very different 
than saying we must obey in order to be saved. That's not what we're saying. Now, how and why is it that someone can love God? Well, 1 John 4, 10 and 19, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because He first loved us. So if indeed we are those who love God, if indeed we are those who are called according to His purpose, the only reason we fit in that category of His children is because He loved us first. It is not nothing that we did. God initiates the love that is in us. He loves us first. He grants us to be born again and to love Him back. Those who love God, it says, that are also called according to His purpose. The word there, called, kletos in the Greek, the Bible dictionary says that is someone whose participation or presence has been officially requested. You've been summoned. By who? By Almighty God. It makes a note. Those who have been summoned do not have an option to refuse. Sound familiar? That's effectual calling. If the Lord calls you to salvation, it doesn't matter if you're on the road to Damascus, ready to go and persecute Christians, he will knock you off your horse. If any one of us can remember when the Lord called us, it didn't matter what plans we had for our future, for our life. If the Lord calls you, you are coming. Yelling, screaming, uh, screaming with your family opposed. It doesn't matter. You're coming. Those who are called. Those who are called are the same ones who love God. And this is preparing us for the passage in Romans that Paul will be telling us that those who are called are those who were predestined. Those who are predestined are also sanctified and those are also glorified. We're getting there. Be patient, okay? But we are working our way in what Paul is saying right before that passage. When God calls, he has summoned his elect to be his people for salvation, to worship him, to serve him, to preach his gospel, to be part of the church. And in short, he calls us for his glory and for our good. For his glory and for our good. His ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of God, I realize could be summarized in many different ways, but I chose two passages to summarize that. First, Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There will be a time when all of God's enemies will be subdued. All of them. And Jesus will be using that. He's basically stepping on them, right? His footstool, he's, he's over them. And then Matthew 28, 19 to 20, it says, the Lord Jesus speaking, given the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
All of God's enemies will be defeated and all nations will be put under the lordship and rule of King Jesus. So then what's the promise then? We have the certainty that this will happen. We have the condition under which this is true. This will be true only for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What is the promise? It takes us to the third point. The promise is that everything in the life of those who love God will work together for good. Let's read Romans 8, 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, it is a given. We enjoy good things. We should give thanks for good things. God's provision, our families, our salvation. Knowing that we have been spared from eternal judgment through faith in Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. We have been spared from judgment. And those good things could be something as great as the thought of our salvation, the thought of our loved, our beloved brother Eric being in glory right now. That's great truth. But it could be as simple as the simple blessings of life that we enjoy. I was telling my wife this week how I actually really love our little dog, Biscuit. Like she actually brings joy to me. Right, the simple, simple blessings of life. Even that is part of God's blessing. And that would fall in his common grace because even those that are non-believers enjoy that as well. So then, the, all things work together for good. Understanding that in good times, in times of blessing, that should be relatively straightforward. Now, let's focus on those things that are not something we perceive as good. In that, we have to remember God's sovereignty. He is sovereign. He's in control. God ordains and allows the trials in our lives. Sometimes, some otherwise well-intended Christians may be inclined to believe that God did not intend for his children to suffer. But that sometimes God just can't avoid his children running into trouble. Or even that much more credit is given to Satan than is granted, right? Yes, Satan roars, is, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking so him make devour. Yes, absolutely. But it is still under God's sovereignty. Whatever Satan tempts us or attacks us cannot, it will not happen un unless God has ordained it. In some circles, they even address Satan in their prayers, right? Giving them too much credit. Rebuking Satan, addressing Satan in prayers, like that's not biblical. Rather, we should focus on worshiping, pleading with, and thanking God. God's sovereignty. Let us look at Deuteronomy 32, 39. What does God take credit for? It says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive, and I wound, and I heal. 
and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What is the key there that we should take away? Well, God has a purpose in the evil of our fallen world. Notice that God does not back away from accepting the totality of his sovereignty. God is not afraid of bad press. God is not afraid of being canceled. There's no such thing. So we should not jump in front of an evil event as apologists for God because, you know, that's something he really wanted to prevent, but, you know, things just fell through the cracks and he couldn't do it. No, that is not the God of Scripture. Everything works together for good. It is the process God uses to refine his people in accomplishing his purposes. And to the non-believing world, it also accomplishes the purpose of showing the depravity of sin and its consequences. Recently, a dear brother of mine from work, who is a Christian, he asked me for prayer because he was under distress at the doctor's office of something he described as he literally felt like his mind was going to blank out and he was going to pass out. He called me. He was about to be seen by the doctor. He was very, very anxious. We prayed. Later, he came to me. A few days later, came over my desk and he told me that after we prayed that his anxiety went away. And the doctors really couldn't find out what was wrong. Now, I take no, no credit for it, right? Please don't assume that, like, I have healing power. That's not the case here. But that case of a dear Christian being able to count upon the blessings of God and be calm of his anxiety was used as his family, as his co-workers, as his friends asked him because they were very worried about his health. And he told me that he was able to witness to them, to tell them that God took away his anxiety. That by the power of prayer and his trust in Christ, he was able to overcome whatever it was that was bothering him. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't see the doctor. He did see the doctor. It doesn't mean that he stopped taking medicine. That he, no, it doesn't mean that. But God used that instance in order to witness about the power of God to people that would perhaps otherwise not have been exposed to that. All things, it includes bad things. So let us look at a couple of things that work together for good in the life of believers. Suffering. Now suffering in the life of the Christian, it could be either self-induced or it is a refining trial that our Lord is giving us. Suffering should drive us to God. Who else can we run to? Who else can we turn to in times of suffering? Vices? Lusts? Despair? Perhaps many of us have done that. How'd that work out? Suffering. So suffering, if it's self-induced, it teaches us to hate sin. It teaches us to repent from it and to learn not to fall into it again. Hebrews 12.6 reads, For the Lord, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. <coughs> Many times we find ourselves suffering 
And in our suffering, we fail to see that we're suffering that trial because of our own sin. It is true that we are suffering in that instance. It is true that perhaps through the consequence of our sin, we're being mistreated or we're being wronged. That may be true. But if we fail to see that in the first place we're in here because I was sinning against God, we have failed to recognize that it was our own doing that found ourselves in that circumstance. Self-induced suffering. Nevertheless, God will use that for good. Teach us to repent, not to fall in that sin. Now, suffering, what about if it's a refining trial by God? This teaches us to trust Him. He brings out our doubt. Everything's going fine. Oh, I trust the Lord. Praise God. Everything's going good. He's blessing me. But when things start going wrong, through really could be nothing of our own doing, doesn't it bring out doubt? Does it not bring out discontent? During those trials of refining, does it not become clear that perhaps we were putting our priorities in the wrong order? I'll put myself as an example. I recall during one of the most trying times in my walk, there was a time that I would consistently wake up at 4 a.m. and fall on my knees and pray. I remember that. Now, let me confess this. Don't think too highly of me now. I haven't done this. I don't do this anymore. Why? Because things are relatively good. Is that not the case of our human nature, even as being Christians? It is during the very heavy trials when we are drawn to our knees and we come closer to God as believers. Or even for non-believers, for them to repent and trust God. So then suffering confirms that we are in Christ. John 16, says, the Lord Jesus speaking, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We're having tribulation as Christians. The Lord Jesus said you would. During good company. And then suffering also conforms us to the image of Christ more and more as we walk in our Christian life. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Suffering brings us closer to God. Suffering conforms us to the image of Christ. And then we know that temptation can also ultimately work together for good. Really? Temptation? How so? Well, for the real Christian, temptation works itself ultimately for good because it shows us that we are weak. It shows us that when we fall, that is not where we belong. That is not where we want to be. How many of us have fallen into sin willingly, not by accident, willingly? Only to realize that it was an empty pit. There's nothing there. Nothing there for us as true Christians. And therefore it teaches us to hate sin. To know that we are weak. 
and that we need dependence upon God's spirit so that we can resist the lust of our flesh and the traps of the devil. When we realize that, the real Christian realizes that that will work itself out for ultimate good. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying let us be tempted and fall. No. Because as we mature, we learn that lesson already. And then, ultimately, sin will work out for good in the life of the Christian. Because it reminds us of the consequences that sin brings. The wages of sin is death. Sin brings suffering, despair, loss. It brings a break of communion with our Lord. Not because He moved, but because we moved. For those who are true children of God, the consequence of sin and God's discipline, even if it's through the discipline of a local church, a true child of God will return to the sheepfold of God. A true child of God will return to the sheepfold of God. In that sense, sin works out in the end for good to restore the child of God. Now, let me comment this. If someone remains unrestored in their sin, never comes back to the fold of God. If someone is brought before the church in church discipline and does not repent and they get on their high horse and they're being proud, that too ultimately works itself for good. Why? Because it exposes a false believer. It exposes a sheep that is here to divide and to leaven the lump. In that sense, in that case, rather, we would say they went out from us because he or she was never really of us. And God's word will again prove true that even that worked out itself for the good of God's people. Now, there are other examples of how everything works together for good, but let me, let me go directly to this one. The most sinful act to ever take place in world history also work itself for the ultimate good of God's people. I'm talking about the murder of the only perfect man who ever existed. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. People often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? My answer, that's only happened once. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus is the means that God has used to bring us redemption, to bring us salvation, to bring restoration between a broken, sinful world and himself. It was the plan of God to do so. Let us read Acts 4, the last uh, part of verse 24, and then verses 28 and 28, uh, 27 and 28. It, it reads... This is the, uh, the apostles when they are praying for boldness. It says, Sovereign Lord. See that sovereign? They recognize it. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
the arrest, the humiliation, the murder of our Lord Jesus was not an accident. It was not God's plan B or plan C. It was the only plan. There was no other way for unworthy sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. A perfect sacrifice had to take place. The only way that would happen was if God himself became a man in the person of Jesus and offered himself as a sacrifice. Now, if the suffering of the Lord Jesus is the means by which his people obtain ultimate good, we can be sure that if God says that all things work together for good for his children, we can take that promise with us and know that it is certain. We can take it to the bank. Now, when it says that those things work together, those two words work together. That's in the Greek where we get the word synergy. All the things that happen in the lives of believers, all the things that you're going through right now, ultimately work in a God-ordained synergy for the common goal of the life of the believer, which is ultimately to glorify God. should be encouraging for us whatever each one of us is going through right now will work itself out for good for those who love God so then three quick things to reflect upon here as we close the sermon that we can ponder about and think about as we retreat today first you may be experiencing a time of trial, either self-induced or perhaps through a refining trial by God. You may be grieving, you may be burdened, you may be feeling that you're being crushed. If you are a child of God, draw near to Him. Because that too will be used for the ultimate good in your walk with God. Draw near to Him. And know that this church is here for you. This is your church. If this is you, if you're experiencing a trial right now, do not waste your suffering. Because even for that, you will give an account. Do not waste your suffering. Draw near to God. Do not fall into temptation of thinking that this is a time for you to go away from God. And perhaps... Indulge in whatever temptations there may be. Don't waste your suffering. Now, if you may be a, secondly, a, you may be a person who is enjoying a trial-free season of your life. Maybe life is not perfect, but it's relatively good. I tell you, praise God. Serve others. Weep with others. Ensure that your priorities are aligned to the glory of God. Do not wait until the trial comes to then realize, man, you know what? Yeah, my priorities were all screwed up. Don't wait. Be thankful now. Serve God now in humility. Serve God's people now in humility. If you are enjoying a time of 
relatively, relatively trial-free. And then lastly, I will reiterate that this promise that all things, good and bad, work together for good. It's not for everyone. I want to be very clear. That promise is only for those who love God. That is, it's only for Christians. For the non-Christian, the suffering of this world is as best as it's going to get. And in eternity, damnation and punishment for the sins that have been committed in this lifetime will only magnify the agony and the suffering. To you, I would say, repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. Believe the gospel. God will not turn you away. The message of salvation is for you. If you have an ear to hear, if you know that you've offended a holy God, fall on his mercy. Know that he is a forgiving God and will not turn you away. And when you fall in God's mercy, know that he has you. He will take you. He will forgive you. And then the promise that all that has happened and will happen in your life will be used for good because you are now a child of God. In that, we can rejoice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are holy, that you are good, and that you are perfect in all your ways. Lord, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. We ask, Lord, that in our suffering, that you grant us the strength that you have promised us. And to grant us the promise to see the light of the fact that you will work everything out for good in our lives. Lord, if it's a time of blessing in our life and not in trial, help us to thank you, to serve your people, to love you, to worship you, to connect with the church. And that it would be for your glory and for our good. We thank you, Lord, that all things will ultimately work together for good to those who love you. We trust in that promise today, and we worship you for it. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.